We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Welcome. This is Politics Friday. I guess it's episode number 19. And you have uh, Bob Brandon and Hampton Keithley here. So, Bob, um, we're going to be in Christianity and the Constitution again. What's the topic today? We are, and we're going to talk about the founding fathers, but in a sense, their founding beliefs. We have been doing that, but this is our wrap-up session okay. for, you know, in order to summarize, you know, what did these, what was in the mind of the guys who wrote the Constitution? What, what beliefs were guiding their pen. So it's exciting. This is going to be a great chapter. This is my favorite one. And especially when we get to the end, but I have a question for you okay. before we start Hampton and you better be truthful on this. Not that you're not, but <laughs> just a heads up. Um, how did you golf the other day? Well, I just about had a heat stroke cause it was 101. <laughs> Did you break 80? I did. I did. That's I started pretty, off pretty I, good. But after f- the first five bogeys, my friend and I decided we would just keep score by um, saying how much plus or minus we were over bo- for over bogey. And then something happened and I had an eagle putt on seven and missed it. And then I made the eagle putt on eight, number eight and, and then parred my way all the way to the end. <clears throat> So pretty nice. Did you, did you hit well out of the sand traps? Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was fun. I drove it into the sand, hit it from that sand trap to the next sand trap. And then from that sand trap to a foot from the hole and made a par. Under 80, under 80 is pretty good. Yes. Well, this place has been uh, remodeling and they put all nice beach sand in the sand trap. And so it was uh, fun to hit out of the sand traps for a change. Oh, good. Okay. To our task at hand here, let me read the first paragraph of this chapter. This is Christianity in the Constitution by John Eidsmo. And the first paragraph of chapter four, which is titled Law and Government. Imagine yourself as a reporter for a 20th century publication in a time machine with the dial set for A.D. 1787, the days of the Constitutional Convention. Or perhaps you'll represent yourself as a spokesman for the U.S. Bicentennial Commission of 1987, asking the Founding Fathers what they meant when they wrote the Constitution. Notepad in hand, your mind brimming with questions, you prepare to interview Washington, Hamilton, Madison, and the others for the news scoop of the year. So that's a good way to set up the chapter. You know, what what were these guys thinking if you could interview them? Although I would say to Eidsmo, uh, you know, what did they mean when they wrote the, they mean what they said. (laughs) That always puzzles me when people find that such a huge obstacle. Well, what could this mean? It means what it says. And the, the reason I've, I belabor that is people ask the same questions about the Bible, right? Well, how can you know what it means? 
Well, it just means what it said. How, you know, how hard is it to understand for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? That well, it means what it says. Well, I remember, and I think we talked about this a few weeks back on another podcast, but at ETS one year, some of the guys were up there talking about something they called reader response. Yeah. And I think the idea was that texts have different meanings for the reader and you can make the text mean whatever it, whatever you as the reader want it to mean. And then they that would write be an application of that. Yeah. And it was, it was kind of, is irony the right word where the guy would write a book saying that books have no meaning that you, you know, right. and, and you're like, like, well, why are you bothering to write this book? Yes. Or why are you standing there speaking to us? Because I can make what you say mean anything I want to me. And right. the guy next to me can make it mean what, then, then don't give the lecture. Why is there any communication? They're, they're so self-defeating those kind of ideas that's just liberalism trying to sneak into um whatever area they want to conquer so they want to conquer the constitution so they raise the question right well how can you know what it means (laughs) well it means what it says just like everybody does right people people want to be understood we probably did talk about this but they want to be understood when they speak so just normal rules of interpretation, right? Same for us. Anyway, it's a good way to start the chapter. Like what if you could actually talk to Madison or Hamilton or Washington and what were they thinking? So he goes on in the chapter to highlight, um, you know, the sources of ideas for the founding fathers. Obviously the greatest source of ideas for the founding fathers was Calvin, John Calvin, right? He's, he's what we called the founder of this country. At, at least ideologically he is. These guys didn't just read John Calvin. So if you look at a distribution of quotes by the founding fathers, right? They write mm-hmm. letters to each other. They write materials and so on. And, and you can tell who they're referring to. So in the 1960s, or excuse me, in the 1760s, 24% of the quotes of the founding fathers were from the Bible. In the the 1770s, 44% of the quotes of the founding fathers were from the Bible. In the 1780s, yep, 1780s, 34%, 1790s, 29%. And anyway, if you add them up from 1760s to 1800, 34% of one in three of their quotes was from the Bible. Second place is a category called the Enlightenment. John Locke. So they, they were... John Locke, we'll talk about him, Montesquieu, Locke, Hume, they're quoting those guys, about on, on average, 22%. And then uh, Whigs, remember that political party, mm-hmm. then common law, then the classical, like Greek and Roman writers, that was 9% from the classical guys. The Whigs were 18, common law was 11. So anyway... You can see where they're getting their thoughts from. It's pretty easy to track that, actually. And then, so the writers, the Enlightenment guys, Montesquieu was about 8% of the Enlightenment quotes were from him. Blackstone, about 8%. Montesquieu was a little more, but they were very close. Locke and Hume. Plutarch, remember him? Mm-hmm. He wrote The Great Lives of the Roman Guys. That's a good book. I've got that in my library. That's fun to read that. So let's look into these guys. We know basically what the Bible's saying, why they would be quoting that, but let's look Montesquieu, then we'll look at uh, Blackstone, then Locke, and so on, and then we'll get to the end of this chapter. This will be really exciting. So 
Montesquieu was cited by the founders of this nation more frequently than any other source except the Bible. His best known work, The Spirit of Laws, distinguished four forms of government. This is interesting. Listen, listen up. Monarchy, in which the guiding principle is honor. Aristocracy, in which the guiding principle is moderation. Republican democracy, in which the guiding principle is virtue. And despotism, in which the guiding principle is fear. That well, interesting. I, that, that's it, so interesting that virtue was yeah. the, the main idea between yeah, for it, the republic. Yeah, he, so he's thinking, Montesquieu is thinking, right, like Greek and Roman, those, those kind of cultures. And what they really valued was virtue. And, and that word comes, you know, it's a Latin word, of course, that that comes from uh, the word like for man, we're, V-I-R, which is also, I know you're trying to rabbit track, track me, Hamilton, Hampton, but I almost called you Hamilton. You were, you were almost a founding father there for a second. Um, so the word werewolf Right. Can you guess the etymology of that? The wolf is obvious, but where that's from Latin for man. Okay. Right. The man wolf. So virtue really comes from the word for man. That that's how they considered it, what it was to be a man was virtuous. But, but you're right. That's interesting that that's how they thought of a democratic Republic. Well, and, and, I don't remember Madison maybe was the one that said that our government won't work unless we have a moral uh, population. Correct. And then what was it? Uh, Benjamin Franklin said to the lady when he walked out of the constitutional convention and she says, well, what do we have? And he goes, a Republic, if you can keep it, if you can keep it, they, they knew the dangers. These, those guys were so sharp. It was such a marvelous collection of thinkers at the time. Yeah. It really was uh, that, that we all have benefited from. But how about this? So let me raise this question. The, remember the fourth one, despotism in which the guiding principle is fear. What's can anybody can anybody right say now? can anybody say COVID? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't that describe our culture? Yeah. And so we're headed for a despotism. It's going to be communism, right? Ruled by a few, a ruling cabal, you know, those who are in the club pulling all the strings and they'll, they'll control the whole, whole culture. I'm almost certain of that. By well, the and, way. and the I'm, idea of safety and you give up your freedoms for safety. And so you don't feel the need to, for safety unless you have fear. That's exactly right. That, that's right, Hampton. So, uh, but keep, keep in mind the context of what we're saying. So outside of the Bible, this guy, Montesquieu, was the most quoted individual. And this is what he's saying, that the primary motivation of a democratic republic is virtue. And the primary motivation of despotism is fear. That's it's interesting, and it, so and he's an that, enlightenment, not a he's yes, an yes. enlightenment guy, not yes. a biblical guy, but he right, but he, he recognized the truth exactly. But he but he was a believer. Oh, he was. Yes, um, Montesquieu. So I'm I'm quoting now from um, Eidsmo. Montesquieu believed all law has its source in God. Okay. As he says in the opening of the spirit of laws. So this is a direct quote from Montesquieu. God is related to the universe as creator and preserver. The laws by which he created all things are those by which he preserves them. So think about this. Remember talking about the natural law? Mm -hmm. 
he 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 believed that tooth and nail. Right. Many many of those Enlightenment guys thought that that the laws that you know we wrote for governments were really just reflections. You know, the best laws were really um, were and should be reflections of the natural law that was the guiding principles of the entire creation. That was a that wasn't revelatory back then. That was held by a lot, held by a lot of thinkers down through the ages. So remember the value of reading, um, oh, who's that German guy we, that that was saying, oh, we threw out God. Now what are we going to replace him with, right? The, the value, Nietzsche was saying mm-hmm. that, the value of that insight. And what we've replaced God with is fallen mankind with, with all the abuses that come along with that. So back to Montesquieu, here's a key belief of Montesquieu. I'm, I'm quoting Eidsmo. Montesquieu believed man was basically evil and self-centered. <laughs> Remember, we spent like half a podcast on that, right? The fallen right. nature of man. Right. And then as a, in contrast to Rousseau. Correct. Which we read in the Truman book, which man is basically good and society makes him evil. Correct. So it's not so much you need to be prepared with these names in a philosophical way and go to a dinner dinner party and toss these terms out. That's not <laughs> that's not my goal. Right. Because right. most people don't even when they do toss those terms out, they don't really know what they're saying. They don't really know what those thinkers thought. But but it is important that you get the basic idea. Well, and I think it's important to recognize that when we hear today, the United States was not founded as a Christian nation. It was, you know, a product of the enlightenment that this enlightenment guy, Montesquieu was really a Christian and recognized the biblical principle of man is basically a sinner. And so that's not a fair that's right. Their- That's right. Most of those dinner party statements are false. Yeah. If you, if you really examine them. And if you take the 34% of the Bible quotes and the 8% <laughs> of Montesquieu yeah. quotes, and now we're up to 42%. And, yeah. and I imagine some of these other guys they quoted were coming from a biblical worldview. Yes. So- and, and also it, it's not even just their quoting. It's the foundation of what they thought. You know what I mean? So even if they're not, quote, quoting the Bible, the Bible is their whole basis for everything they thought about the world, whether they're quoting it or not. So so as far as being a a Christian nation in our founding, I, I would venture to say, I don't think you could have posited a more Christian concept than our Constitution. Mm hmm. I, I think it would be impossible to draw one up that was more Christian in, in principle than, than what we've had. And he, for instance, here's a contrast. <clears throat> this is again, back to Eidsmo, but he's referring to Montesquieu. Montesquieu compared Christianity to Islam and declared Christianity superior, partly because of the better government it promotes. And this is a direct quote from Montesquieu. A moderate government is most agreeable to the Christian religion and a despotic government to the Mohammedan. That, that was his phrase for Islam. Right. Right. A, a follower of Mohammed. So, you know, think of our mainstream press and how often they praise Islamic nations. And the reason for that is because Islam promotes despotism and Christianity promotes our constitution, which they don't like because it limits their power. That was Montesquieu's whole point is that the kind of constitution or the kind of thoughts that provided for our constitution would limit the government because they see government power as evil. Right. I, I was um, reading Rodney Stark's book, the, um, How the West Won. That was such mm. a good book that I think I read it at least three times. And 
um, told everybody about it and gave it away. But in that book, he points out the uh, backwardness of Islam. And the, you know, there's a theological reason if God is capricious and totally in charge and then, you know, why bother trying to do anything because whatever Allah wills is going to happen. And so as a result, they were not the um, advanced civilization that they're portrayed in, mm-hmm. in the movies. And I had to think about uh, the Kevin Costner Robin Hood movie. Did you ever see that? I'm not a movie guy. Hampton. Oh, I don't believe you. <laughs> so no, in that, I, in, I, I did not see that. Oh, that was one of my favorite movies. <laughs> so Kevin Costner is um, in the Holy Land and he's in prison and he escapes with the help of Morgan Freeman, who is the Saracen and uh, or more or whatever. Yep. And um, so because he helps save the life of Morgan Freeman, then he you know, says, I'm going to stay with you until I've saved your life. And at once in one scene, he pulls out Morgan Freeman, uh, pulls out a telescope and uh, Robin Hood looks through it and just about falls off the wall because the people that are charging them look so close. He's, you know, trying to pull his sword out. And, you know, so the idea here is that the advanced culture of the um, Muslims you know, have the telescope and the Europeans mm-hmm. do not. Mm-hmm. When in fact, the telescope, I think, was probably uh, invented by a European, you know, Copernicus or Galileo mm-hmm. or something like that. And uh, and then later in the movie, uh, little John's wife is having problems having the baby. And so Morgan Freeman goes in and does a C-section. And, you know, everybody's like thinking this is, you know, dangerous and never heard of it and but the way hollywood portrays the muslim culture was says sure way more ad, it. way yeah. more advanced than the european culture and, and the you know so it's just you, know. you you see those kinds of messages and i you know i wonder how many people recognize that those were you know not true yeah and they're not they're not true in what they're trying to promote um but that's Back, remember um, last time we talked about Hank the cow dog and how the the TV producers totally changed that story from its right. original author to fit their worldviews. So they got rid of marriage, the they family. got rid of male, yep, family and male right. leadership yep. stuff like that. Right. So same thing happens, you know, in those kind. That's what you're referring to. Not that, and my point isn't the Islamic nations are barbarians backwards it's just it's not what you're being told it is it's much more conducive to despots and you often see that in those those nations you don't really see true um, elections by the people right it's all rigged and you you just get military dictators in a lot of those states so back to Montesquieu here this is this is an important point so uh, Idesmo wants to separate Montesquieu and his beliefs from what he calls like the radical philosophers, you know, that were going around in France, particularly around the time of the French Revolution and so on, and leading up to that. Someday we're going to have to do a podcast on the French Revolution because you, you have no greater example of the depravity of man, I don't think, than the French Revolution. It, it was very different than the American Revolution. Right. But be that as it may, I'm just setting up this paragraph by Eidsmo. He says, while Montesquieu's countrymen followed the way of the radical philosophers, which ultimately led to destruction, the American founding fathers were receptive to his views. He recognized the value of religion, Christianity in particular, in fostering good laws and good government. Knowing the sinful nature of man, he advocated separation of powers by which power checks power. That was Montesquieu's main contribution to the thinking of the founders of this nation, the separation of powers between the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of government. 
So when you see that in our constitution, that's ultimately coming from the idea of the fallen nature of man, which comes from the Bible. And then as explained by Montesquieu, you got to, given the fact that that exists, you got to balance that out. You, you have to confront the powers with another power so that no one dominates. Okay, that's good. So next, next guy, Blackstone. Okay, before you, before you get started on Blackstone, um, when, I, <laughs> when I was growing up, I was a big Louis L'Amour fan, and I probably read all 120 of his books twice, and uh, one of the things that popped up several times in, in the stories was how the Cowboys couldn't carry too many books with them, but they did like to read, and so most of those guys riding across the the West with their saddlebags had a copy of Blackstone in the saddlebag. So oh, just, there you go. <laughs> so I thought that was, the, you know, yeah. that's a great setup though. So it's obviously why, why would, you know, Lemur's fiction, correct? Right. Well, but why would he put that in there? Obviously he's researching the times. Mm-hmm. And he, he's trying to make it, you know, accurate, historically accurate, though, though it's fiction. And he's obviously has come across Blackstone. So yeah. here, let's yeah, read he, about I, that. A, well, his books are not only historically accurate in those kinds of ways, they're also geographically accurate. And I'm reading one of them. Oh, Lemur's, Lemur's stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he has one book where. I can't remember which one, but the guys are coming over Independence Pass and they go past this big boulder, you know, and kind of head down the hill. And I'm like, I know which boulder he's talking about, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, or in his book on Matagorda, when I lived in Victoria, Texas, you know, he was describing, you know, the scenes and stuff. And I'm like, I know exactly what he's talking about. So, oh, that's, so that's kind of fun. fun. That's fun. You know, oh, that's a great rabbit trail. Give me 30 seconds. Oh, that's so fun. So the first time, so I was in seminary at this time. So a young man, you know, I don't know, 25, 26 years old. And somebody before one of the classes started, they said, hey, this, this is a pretty funny cartoon. And he, he passed this little photocopy of a cartoon to me. And it was Calvin and Hobbes. And Calvin was sled riding. I'd, I'd never seen a Calvin and Hobbes before. And I glance at that picture. So imagine how simple one little frame of a cartoon picture is black and white. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I looked at that and I said, I know that hill. How, how could you know that from just <laughs> the angle of, you know, how, but so my brain said that that looks really familiar to me. So, and it was a funny cartoon you know so I chuckled and then I started so what is this you know after class I'm looking up Calvin and Hobbes well the guy grew up five minutes from me outside outside of Cleveland and that's where we all used to sled ride he's he's drawing the hill we all oh man so that's Mm -hmm. so funny when those things you know strike your brain that way um okay so let's read about Blackstone so noted for literary quality and readability, as well as for legal and historical scholarship, Sir William Blackstone's famous Commentaries on the Laws of England are rated as the most famous treatise on common law. Imagine that. Throughout the later half of the 1700s and the first half of the 1800s, Blackstone's popularity in America was uneclipsed. It is said that more copies of Blackstone's commentaries were sold in America than in England, that his commentaries were in the offices of every lawyer in the land, that candidates for the bar were routinely examined on Blackstone, that he was cited authoritatively in the courts, that a quotation from Blackstone settled many a legal argument so that's why lamore's got, got wow. him in the saddlebags of the wild west right I, we couldn't we couldn't have planned that illustration better 
So the, the founding fathers drew three major points from Blackstone. So let's get down to the nitty gritty here. Of all that stuff Blackstone wrote and how popular he, he was, here's his three ideas. The first was the conviction that all law has its source in God. <laughs> how about that? We're, we're not really a Christian nation, right, Hampton? Right. Yeah, the whole thing is based on God. So here's like, here's a quote from Blackstone, <clears throat> the law of nature. This will of his maker is called the law of nature. For as God, when he created matter and endued it with a principle of mobility and established certain rules for the perpetual direction of that motion, so when he created man and endued him with free will to conduct himself in all parts of life, he had laid down certain immutable laws of human nature, whereby that free will is in some degree regulated and restrained and gave him also the faculty of reason to discover the purport of those laws. Doesn't that sound, I mean, it's more flowery language, which might have been common at the time, mm -hmm. but doesn't that sound exactly like what we were saying about the natural law? Yeah. That, that God has created his universe. So from the very creation itself, we talked about the ether. Remember talking about Tesla and Einstein and what they considered the ether to be and saying that this whole creation is endued with, with God's moral fiber. That's what these guys thought. Blackstone, the most popular guy of the day, that was what he thought, that human law was just should be and often was a reflection of what God had endued is his word for it, the whole universe with. So well, you that, have that, a free. That's Romans 2, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So that, that was his first big idea. His second big idea for the founding fathers, a second significant point in Blackstone's writings was the role of judges. In Blackstone's view, judges discover and apply law. They do not make law. <laughs> oh, <wow>. Right? Purpose, <laughs> the purpose for a judge is to sit there and say, well, what's the Constitution say about this? And, and what have our lawmakers passed? Let me apply that law to this issue. Today, they don't do that. No. You know, but obviously you have some conservative judges who do that, but like Scalia and so on. But <clears throat> he's passed now. But um, mostly they just decide, you know, according to their ideology. They don't. Right. And you can there's been so much law written over the last 200 years. You could find a quote to support whatever you want. Right. They, they have ways to to make their decision look as is. If it's legal, what they're really doing is just imposing their will. They're, they're not interpreting the law and applying it. They're, they're just imposing their political will. So, yeah. and that, that was, you know, to Blackstone, the whole purpose, the whole reason for a judge was to interpret and apply, not make the law up, not legislate from the bench. And when so, you say interpret, we're we're talking about interpreting what the original intent of the law yeah. was not coming up with my own interpretation of what I want it, the law to mean. Exactly. Thank, thank you for that clarification. It would be no different than you and I reading the Bible and interpreting that, you know, to apply to our lives for today. Right. No, no different, but we're not making it up. <laughs> we're reading what's there and, and concluding thoughts about what we see. So the third major point from Blackstone, a third significant point in Blackstone's commentary was his expert systematizing of the common law of England. That's kind of interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't know how to really apply that for, for our purposes this morning, but essentially Blackstone was a systematic theologian, sort of, right, for the British common law. Hmm. So just as 
John Calvin is a systematic theologian, right? Right. So was Blackstone in a sense, right? You know, give a legal field, but the same thing, a systematizer, putting it all together. So it, it made sense. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. One of um, Blackstone's former students, Jeremy Bentham, charged that Blackstone was an arch conservative and an enemy of reformation. That's kind of interesting, right? And terms can, can change significantly down through time. Like there was, a, if you say Democrat to me today, I don't, I don't even like that. To, to me, that just means socialist. Mm-hmm. But there, there was a time in this country where that's not what that term meant. Right. The Democrats were fine. I mean, many, many devout believers were Democrats. Um, and by Reformation, he probably means progressive. Yes. Right. But he just calls him an arch conservative. That, yeah. That's that's interesting. So here's the next guy. You ever heard of John Locke? Oh, yeah. Of course. Right. John Locke was a British philosopher and political theorist who inspired a generation of Americans to thoughts of independence and the rights of man. His best known works are his, quote, easy or essay concerning human understanding and his two treatises on civil government. John Locke was born into a Puritan family the son of a rural Calvinist lawyer who fought on the side of the Puritans in the English Civil War. <laughs> he was educated at Calvinist institutions and emerged with the Calvinistic worldview, although he was a bit more moderate than some Calvinists. He was a pious man, always held a high view of scripture. Locke studied the Bible extensively wrote paraphrases of St. Paul's epistles to the Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians, as well as an essay for the understanding of St. Paul's epistles by contrast, by consulting St. Paul himself. (laughs) (laughs) So you get the idea, right? These guys were devout in their faith. So when the founding fathers are not quoting the Bible, which they did more than a third of the time, they're quoting the guys who were formed by the Bible. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry, I've got <clears throat> my allergies are killing me. You can probably hear my voice catch from time to time. So, bear with me. Let me read a little more about John Locke. Okay. Locke frequently cited the Bible in his political writings. In his first treatise on government, he cited the Bible 80 times, 42 of these citations were from Genesis, mostly chapters one and three. 22 biblical citations appear in his second treatise in which he argued that parents have authority over their children based upon the creation of Adam and Eve and their offspring. He also argued that man has the right to possess property since God gave the earth to Adam and later to Noah He based the social compact which government is established upon that paction which God made with Noah after the deluge. His basic doctrines of parental authority, private property, and social compact were based on the historical existence of Adam and Noah. Remember, Hampton, when we were talking about the biblical basis for government, and how we really took that back to Noah. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what John Locke did. Yeah. John Locke made two major contributions to the thinking of America's founding fathers. The first was his doctrine of natural law. The second, Locke contributed the theory of the social compact. So like that, in a sense, Eidsmo doesn't go go into this and describe it much, but it's basically the idea that the Constitution 
represents a contract between the people of the country and the leaders. Right. So that that's what he means. That that idea is coming from Locke. But but Locke is really basing that on the Bible, the Noahic covenant and so on. Well, did you does he get into like Susser and Vassal treaties and Deuteronomy and all no, that? No, but no, but let's do that. So quite often when the founding fathers do quote from the Bible, Locke, you know, was Genesis one and two. There you mm-hmm. see Noah in Genesis six and so on. But mostly they're quoting Deuteronomy, the founding fathers. So for our listeners, if you haven't heard this, it's, it's really important. I'm not going to give you enough this morning that you, you would be able to take away from this and go read the book book of Deuteronomy and completely understand it. But I want to whet the appetite of our listeners to do that. The book of Deuteronomy very closely fits what you just mentioned. That is the ancient Near Eastern suzerain vassal treaty. Very closely. So once you know that, you can begin to read it with a, a much deeper understanding. For instance, anybody who picked up today a, uh, or, or say centuries from now, say 2000 years from now, they're rummaging through the uh, town of Gibson had been flooded or some natural catastrophe, right? And we've been buried. And it turns out where they're digging, you know, some archeology guy 2000 years from now, digs up my house and he, he finds the deed to my property and he's learned English as an ancient language, right? <laughs> and he's reading it, try, trying to figure out, you know, what, what is this I'm reading? Well, you or I would know exactly what that was right now, right? We, we have the social context for that. We, we know what a deed is. There are certain sections to it and so on. Deuteronomy is the exact same way. Here's what, so when we toss out the term, for instance, suzerain vassal treaty, what we mean, suzerain is like a fancy term for king and vassal, you know, the subjects. Right. So in the ancient Near East, you'd have a, a king's treaty in a, in a sense, a contract, just like our constitution with the people. I like say Nebuchadnezzar conquered you. Then he would sit, he's not going to live in your hometown. He's going to go back and live in Babylon. But he's going to talk to your leaders and go, okay, here's the deal. (laughs) I'm really your king. You know, I'm going to rule you from afar, but I'm the king. So here's the rules about that. Here's how I conquered you. Here's what my expectations for for you are. And here's what your expectations of me are. Like, for instance... Now, if somebody else tries to conquer you, I'm going to defend you, right? So it wasn't all bad news. It would, there was some two-way street to it. So, <clears throat> for instance, Deuteronomy is a suzerain vassal treaty. So who's the suzerain, do you suspect? God. God. And who's the vassal? <laughs> Israel. Right? Israel. And this is a contract, in a sense, between God and Israel. I'm using the word contract, right? Theologians called a covenant. I mean, clear as a bell. This is a covenant. Mm-hmm. So the first part of a suzerain vassal treaty is the preamble. And you'll see that in the first five verses of Deuteronomy. The second part. So this is about the next six chapters in Deuteronomy is the historical prologue. Like, how did we get to this point? So that'll be all the material of, man, you guys were slaves in Egypt. I conquered Pharaoh, brought you out, provided for you in the wilderness. You broke my first covenant, right? Stuff like that. First six chapters of Deuteronomy. Next, the next six chapters, the general stipulations. So in general terms, the basic rules, what do we know those today as? That's the 10 commandments. Here's the... Don't steal. Don't right. murder, right? These things that are so obvious. Right? But you will find those spelled out explicitly in the next six chapters of Deuteronomy. Then 
you get the specific stipulations. And this covers like 13 chapters, chapters 12 through 26 of Deuteronomy. And the material in those chapters is doing this, Hampton. So the base, you know, don't murder. Well, you know, what about if we get attacked? You know, don't we need an army and right? So the specific stipulations are spelling out the applications of the general rules. Okay. And that's, that's exactly what you see in Deuteronomy, right? So no, uh, don't commit adultery. Well, that really opens up the whole realm of sexual relationships, right? So you're going to have details in there, just like you get in Leviticus. Can't marry your daughter. You can't marry your mom's wife or, or your, your dad's wife. All those kind of rules that seem so strange to us, but they make perfect sense. They're, they're perfect explanations of the general Ten Commandments. Okay. So, so it takes a, a lot more space, right? It takes 13 chapters to explain how all these things work out. Like don't steal. Well, you're going to find in those 13 chapters of Deuteronomy, don't move the boundary stone. Isn't that stealing? Right. Yeah, aren't you taking the guy's, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, that's how it works. Okay, then in a suzerain vassal treaty, the next thing you're going to have is blesses, blessings and curses. So Nebuchadnezzar would say to a land that he conquered, now, if you guys tick me off, right? If, if you don't do what I'm saying, I'm coming back here and I'm going to spank you again. Or, you know, if you do do what I'm saying, I'll protect you. Everything's going to go well with you, blah, blah, blah. Well, in Deuteronomy, you have pretty similar things, right? If you do what I'm telling you to do, and you get like half a chapter on this, you're going to get, you know, your crops are going to be so full, you won't have enough storehouses to keep the, all the food in there. And I'll, I'll protect you. You're going to be invincible and plenty of food and wealth. You're going to have so many blessings. Then you're going to get a couple chapters of, and if you don't, I'm going to make it not rain, right? I'm going to bring, bring drought, famine. I'm going to bring foreign armies. And all of that exactly happens. It's, it's almost exactly like a suzerain vassal treaty. Right. Then the next section, you get the witnesses. Right. Just like we have, for instance, when you do a wedding and you, you know, sign the marriage contract, there's a place for witnesses on there. And so there are witnesses called to witness the covenant between God and his people. This is one of my favorite. So the witnesses that are called upon, it's kind of interesting. Who would you bring? You're not going to bring the Egyptians. You're not going to bring the Canaanites. You're not going to bring the Babylonians to your covenant. Who's, who's going to witness this deal that goes down between God and Israel? And it's heaven and earth, <laughs> right? right? The whole creation is brought to witness this event. That's why you'll see, for instance, when you read Isaiah, you know, God will say, I'm putting it in my words, but essentially it'll amount to bringing the witnesses. Bring in all creation here to watch this. You guys broke the covenant. And then he's referring to heaven and earth. Or and sometimes he'll just specifically say, bring heaven and earth in here to, to see this. So anyway, back to the founding fathers. Quite often, I mean, most of the time they're quoting the Bible. And of the Bible, they're quoting Deuteronomy, which is the covenant between God and his people. So, And so those ideas are what? goes into our constitution exactly exactly so let's finish out this section i'm going to skip adam smith i kind of wanted to go into him but i'm going to skip him um his famous book the wealth of nations that was a huge book in its day huge but we'll, we'll talk about that in some other contexts um so let's get to this let's finish up today this way Hampton I think this is so valuable now read these there are 15 points 
I'll read them one at a time and I'll stop after each one and see if you have any comments. But what Eidsmo does at this point in his book is summarize the thoughts of the founding fathers that apply to their drafting of the constitution. So their basic beliefs. Number one, they believed in God and his providence by which he guides and controls the universe and the affairs of mankind. Okay. Any questions? No. <laughs> okay, that's number one. Number two, a belief in and respect for revealed religion. That is a recognition that God has revealed his truth through the Holy Scriptures. Right. <laughs> okay, so n- number one, they believed in God. Number two, they believed the Bible was his word. <laughs> okay. okay. Number three, number three. A belief in the God-given power of human reason to apprehend truth. While reason does not supersede revelation, it serves as an aid in the search for truth where the scriptures are silent. That's just really valuable. That doesn't sound like today. That sounds like the opposite of today. The whole concept of truth has been destroyed, right? And so are you starting to see a pattern, though, in the things we've said over the past few weeks on Politics Friday? Here's the pattern I'm seeing emerge. Things that limit destructive power will be torn down by the socialists. Constitution will be torn down because that limits them. The idea of God will be torn down because that limits them. The idea of truth will be torn down because that limits them. Right. So that, that's what we're seeing in our culture. Here's, here's number four. A belief that man is not a perfect or perfectible being and that government governmental theories must take that fact into account. That's, we've talked about that a, a number of times, yeah. right? That, that's Rousseau versus Calvin, right? The, the truth is man has fallen and they needed to account for that. And, and they did. Number five, a belief that God has ordained human government to restrain the sinful nature of man. Doesn't that sound like the opposite mm-hmm. of today? Like the government's there to foster the sinful nature of man. These right. guys thought, thought the opposite, that the government was supposed to limit the sinful nature of man. Here's number six, a belief that God has established certain physical laws for the operation of the universe, as well as certain moral laws for the governance of mankind. Perfect. Number seven. A belief that God has revealed his moral laws to man through the scriptures and through the law of nature, which is discoverable through human reason and the human conscience. Number eight, a belief that human law must correspond to the divine law and the law of nature. Human laws which contradict the higher law are invalid non-binding and are to be resisted (laughs) number nine a belief that the revealed law and the law of nature form the basis of the law of nations like international law like how, how we need to interact with other countries and that this law of nations includes the right of a nation to defend itself against aggressors sound like they thought we ought to have borders? Maybe so. <laughs> okay. Verse 10. So in other words, they thought there was such a thing. I mean, we applied that to borders, but they thought there was such a thing as a just war. Right. Number 10, a belief that the revealed law and the law of nature include natural, God-given, unalienable human rights, which include life, liberty, and property. So all those things that we have enjoyed in the past 
came right. from the came from the Bible. Verse 11, a belief that governments are formed by covenant or compact or the of the people in order to safeguard human rights. So for instance, let me let me state that the government is there to protect your rights. Not that, to that, not to give you Yes, to protect what is unalienable that you have by the very fact that you're in the image of God. You have those rights and the government should be protecting them. Let me make a statement this way. The government has the duty to protect my rights, not my health. I'll, I'll protect my health. I don't need the government to do that. I need them to protect my right to protect my health. Big, yeah. big difference. <clears throat> Verse 11, a belief that governments are formed by covenant or compact of the people in order to safeguard human rights. That was the same one. Sorry. Let me move on to 12. A belief that governments have only such powers as are delegated to them by the people in the said covenants or compacts. And that when governments attempt to usurp powers not so delegated, they become illegitimate and are to be resisted. Hmm. Number 13, a belief that human nature, human nature being what it is, rulers tend to usurp more and more power if given the opportunity. <laughs> Number 14, a belief that the best way to prevent governments from usurping power is to separate their powers and functions into legislative, executive, and judicial branches. Number 15, a belief that human nature, being what it is, a free enterprise economy, is the best way to give people an incentive to produce and develop national prosperity. So there you go. Very good. That's the core beliefs of the founding fathers. Yeah. They don't need much, doesn't need much comment, I think. No, it's so clear. Yeah, anybody could apply that to today or not apply that to today. So imagine, you you might be closer to, well, now we're about the same, but imagine um, going through your curriculum, you know, being educated in this country, kindergarten through college, you wouldn't come away with those 15 ideas today. Oh, no. And yet, that's what we were founded on. And the, the reason you wouldn't come away with those today after your state education is uh, Limbaugh had to, <laughs> you remember what he used to call school? <laughs> he was, oh, he was so good. I miss that guy so much. He used to call it school. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but so you, you go through school today. The reason you don't get taught those things is because that will limit the government's power. And they don't want that limited. So you're not going to hear about those things. In fact, we posted this to our, our blog, right? The, the Constitution has now been labeled by the National Archives Group Harmful Speech. It's staggering. Yeah, it is. So that's where I wanted to leave it today, Hampton. How are we doing? Well, that that was uh, 15 points to depression. <laughs> well, you got to meditate on those as you go around the golf course next time. Okay. Well, enjoy it. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Hampton. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God 
what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. <laughs>